Good morning. Would you uh, turn in the New Testament to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 2, and we'll begin there. Mark chapter 2 today. As you're arriving at that location, let me invite you to bow your heads with me in prayer. Lord Jesus, uh, this morning we do thank you for being here with your people as you have promised to be. Thank you that you are as close to us as our next breath, as our next heartbeat. And Lord, we ask that as we um, are allowed to be especially aware in these moments of your being with us, that our, our brush against you and our encounter with you would be a changing experience for us, that 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 we would lay down our resistance, that we would lay down our doubts, that we would uh, lay down uh, our self-righteousness, and that we would allow you to speak to us. And so, Lord, um, as we listen to your word, uh, would you allow it to be for us an act of worship as we give ourselves to you in love and gratitude? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark chapter 2, this is a great story. And it's, in, it's actually uh, included in all Bibles, even those with extra characters. So, <laughs> these are just the basics. So, here we go. Mark chapter 2. Several days later, Jesus returned to Capernaum. And the news of his arrival spread quickly through the town. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there wasn't room for one more person. Not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Four men uh, arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. And he couldn't get to Jesus. They couldn't get to Jesus through the crowd. So they dug through the clay roof above his head. And then they lowered the sick man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. And seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there said to themselves, What? This is blasphemy. Who but God can forgive sins? And Jesus knew what they were discussing among themselves, so he said to them, Why do you think this is blasphemy? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven? Or get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Now prove that I, the Son of Man, have the authority on earth to forgive sins. And then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, take your mat, and go on home, because you are healed. The man jumped up, took the mat, and pushed his way through the stunned onlookers. And then they all praised God. We've never seen anything like this before, they exclaimed. And we'll ask God to bless this reading, his holy and inspired word. Amen. So uh, this is a uh, a great story about uh, Jesus' power. And it's a story that actually shows up in three Gospels. Uh, And in two of the Gospels, the story is identical. uh, But Mark retains a few details in the story that Matthew doesn't keep for us. Uh, If you uh, still have your Bible handy, flip back to Matthew's version of the same story. And it's found in Matthew chapter 9. 
And uh, let me just read a few verses here and uh, see if, as you listen to Matthew's version, see if you can identify the pieces that uh, Matthew has left out that Mark has included. Uh, Jesus climbed into a boat and went back across the lake to his hometown. Some people brought to him a paralyzed man on a mat. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. So, what's missing? Right? What's missing? They brought the, the, you know, these guys brought somebody on a mat and Jesus said, You're forgiven. What's missing in Matthew's version that we have in Mark? And some people would say, well, the, very, the best part of the story, right? The best details, the drama of the story. All of those bits about uh, this amazing description about what these four people had to go through in order to get the paralyzed man uh, before Jesus. They, had to, they, they uh, traveled some distance. We don't know how far they came. They arrived and they find these sort of impenetrable crowds that they cannot get through. And you have to imagine that uh, you know, maybe their, their, uh, their muscles are aching a little bit. Maybe, uh, maybe their hands are cramping and clenched, having carried this mat. And, and as they stand there and they see this impenetrable mass of people, uh, for a moment there's despair that they have to endure. Uh, we had hoped that we could get before Jesus, but now it doesn't appear to be possible. And then one of them notices a, a, a pathway maybe around behind the house, and has an idea. And so imagine, in the house, Jesus is standing there, teaching away. Everybody is crowded in and pressed in, shoulder to shoulder. It's sweaty, it's hot, it's close. There's no room. And suddenly there's a strange noise that comes from somewhere above. A scraping sound, maybe. Or some rattling going on. People look around a little bit, wonder what's happening. And then suddenly as Jesus is standing there, there's some, some dirt or some dust on his shoulder. Maybe he gets some in his hair. And then there's sunlight coming down. And then a shadow. And then suddenly there's a person being lowered down on a mat in front of Jesus. And then what happens? What is the thing that Jesus says next? Jesus looks up and he sees these four faces looking down through this hole. And what what does Mark tell us? What does Mark say? It's in verse 5. He says, Seeing their faith, he said to the man, Your sins are forgiven. In other words, Jesus saw the faith of these four friends. Jesus looked at their persistence. He looked at their determination, their, their, their relentless love for their friend. And he said, that is faith. That's it. And in response to that faith, Jesus acted. And a paralyzed man was set free in ways that he didn't even know he needed to be set free. Now here's one of the things that I love about this story. By putting the spotlight on these four friends, Mark is painting a picture for us. He's suggesting for us something about what the church is supposed to be like. He is suggesting a little bit about how the church is intended to function. Because all through Scripture, what we find is this. No one 
comes before Jesus alone. No one gets to Jesus alone. We all need to be carried. Everyone needs to be carried. So let me put that just a little bit differently. It is in and through a community of friends that today we call the church that we encounter Jesus. It is through the agency of these friends, it's through this community that we encounter Jesus. There's a text in 1 Peter that gives us another version of this. Uh, Peter is writing to the church. He's writing to Christians who have come together to believe in Jesus and to follow after Jesus. And this is what Peter says to them. He says, But you are not like that, those who aren't following Jesus. He says, For you are a chosen people. He says, You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. And he says, And as a result of that, you can show others the goodness of God. You can show others the goodness of God, for he has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Church, You are the place where people see God. You are the place where people see God's beauty. You're the place where people encounter God. Or even more strongly, to be a part of the church is to be a part of God. Why do I say that? Because in the scriptures we find that the church is Jesus' body. On earth. And when you are a member of a church, you are a member of the body of Jesus. You are participating in God's presence on earth. We find that the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit, the dwelling place of God on earth. See, the church is not just a a helpful thing once in a while that helps me along in my own spiritual journey uh, whenever I need some resources. The church is the journey. The church is the place. Now, I understand that uh, a description like that, when you participate in the church, you participate in God, to be a part of the church is to encounter God. When I, when I say that, I understand that that is a far more robust, almost unbelievable view of the church than is popular today. But the main thing that I want to say today is this. I don't know if you'll... I'll say it. Here it is. Are you ready? Here's what I want to say today. The church, this community of God's people, is the only true means to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. The church is the place that God uses to transform us into the likeness of Jesus. And so here's the question. Here's the question. It's a compelling question. Who is it that carries you to Jesus? Who is it today that's carrying you to Jesus? Who is it uh, whose persistence, whose determination, whose relentless love will move heaven and earth to make sure that you are in the presence of Jesus, that you are in the throne room? Who, who knows you well enough to see your need and to know that you need to be carried and that, that only Jesus can heal your need? And who says, you know what, I will never, 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 never give up on you. Who is it that says that? 
Who, who carries you today into the presence of Jesus? And then there's a second question that goes with that. When I said that first question, who was it that named you? Who was it that just named you? Who was it that, when I asked, who is it that carries you, your name was the name that came to mind as somebody who would have a corner of their mat. Who named you? And so here's the challenge. If you didn't name anybody, if there's nobody that you could name, and, if, and there's nobody that you know of that would name you beyond your immediate family, then it's possible that your view of the church has gotten a little bit too small and a little bit too narrow. And describing this smaller, more narrow view of the church and the consequences of this view, Dallas Willard writes this. He writes, We have, in the church, counted on preaching and teaching to form faith in the hearer and on faith to form the inner life and behavior of the Christian. But for whatever reason, this strategy has not worked out well. And the result is that we have multitudes of professing Christians that may well be ready to die, but obviously are not ready to live, and can hardly get along with themselves, much less others. In other words the one place where we are supposed to find transformation into the Christ-likeness that we're intended to inhabit is not up to the task. It's not delivering on God's intention for who we are to be. Now contrast what Willard has said with this vision that Peter has, this vision that Peter is longing for, this incredible vision that he says is your birthright. He says, you are royal priests. You are a holy nation, church. You are God's very own possession. And when people encounter you, they see the goodness of God. When I was in high school, uh, I had a few dark patches along the way. And I found myself particularly drawn to a couple who were serving as our youth sponsors. And their house was sort of on the walking path home from school. And every once in a while on my way back, I would uh, stop and visit and have in-depth conversations. And uh, this was a couple that I came to rely on and cherish. And one day, uh, after I had graduated from high school and gone on to college, I uh, came home to visit uh, sometime in the middle of my freshman year of college. And I found my mother sitting at the kitchen table, and her eyes were red. And I knew that there was something wrong, and I asked my mother, what had happened? What's wrong? And she said that the wife of this couple that had been my youth sponsors had died. And then her next sentence was, and her husband has been arrested and charged with killing her. And as the investigation into that crime unfolded, what became really clear was that all along the way, there had been deep trouble in that marriage. There had been a lot of marital discord, and the police had actually visited that house 
many times. And as all of that became sort of public knowledge in this small town, all of their friends, all of their friends, said that they were shocked and that they hadn't ever known anything was wrong. See, this, this couple, they had, they had all of the sort of Christian, churchy, look good, have it all together boxes properly checked. They had checked all of the boxes. They were doing everything right. They went to church every, every single Sunday. They were in Sunday school every single Sunday. They took great sermon notes. They, they, they were youth sponsors. He was a deacon. They, they were checking all of the right boxes. They did everything right. Except when it really mattered, there was nobody there to carry them before Jesus. There was nobody to stand with them when they were overwhelmed. In a lot of ways, that realization, that was a watershed moment in my life. And as I think about my sort of love-hate relationship with the church, it goes back to that moment. And there's almost nothing that turns me off more than a churchy superficiality pretending to do church. And there is nothing that I am more passionate about, nothing that is more beautiful than seeing what happens when somebody encounters the presence and the beauty of God in the midst of God's people. So the question that I've been asking for almost all of my life is this. How do we get less of Willard We can hardly get along with each other. And a lot more of Peter. When they see you, they see the beauty of God. How do we become a place where everybody that I make eye contact with, I know they've got my mat. They see me, they know my needs. They stand with me in encouragement and in prayer. They're lifting me up. They're challenging me. They're doing everything that they can. Everybody that I look at has a corner of my mat. And when you look around the room, you see the mats of those that you would carry before Jesus. And nothing would get in the way. How do we become more and more and more of that? So three things, very quickly. First is that there's a recognition that we have to have that we all have needs. We have to have a recognition that we all have needs. We we can't pretend about the nature of our neediness. Now, in this story, I know that Jesus is showing us something about his authority to forgive sins. But in telling us about his authority to forgive sins, he's also showing us something about the way our needs operate. Right? In, in some ways, there's a presenting problem. There's the problem or the challenge that is visible and that we can see and that we experience. Maybe it's a challenge that, that uh, uh, generates in us some kind of a felt need. This man can't walk, and he knows that he can't walk, and he knows that it's a problem. 
But then beneath that surface problem, there's a deeper problem. There's a problem that Jesus sees, a problem that nobody else has named. And when Jesus sees the man, he says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. He's going to a deeper, more universal need. And I wonder if, if nobody in the room had complained about Jesus' blasphemy at forgiving sins, I wonder if he would have just stopped right there and said, I'm so glad you're here today. Your sins are forgiven. Now haul him back up. I, I don't know what Jesus would have done. Jesus was there to meet the real need. And for Jesus, the healing was just a, a dressing of a symptom of that deeper need. Your sins are forgiven. Now, on the surface, it may not seem like you need to be carried at all. On the surface, it may seem like you don't have any needs. It may seem like you walk just fine and that you've got it covered. Your life is pretty well together. You have no obvious needs. Or your belief is that you've already dealt with all of your needs. You're no longer on a hospital ship. You're on a cruise liner. But Jesus is saying, I can see beneath the surface. I see beneath the surface, and I see that every single one of you has a need. And the beginning of community is recognizing that all of us have needs. The second thing I want to say is this, that we grow in trust. We grow in trust, we grow in vulnerability, we grow in our openness with one another. Uh, If I do come to the place... Uh, where I admit that I have needs, that I have fears, that I have wounds, that Jesus sees. My impulse is to say, dear God, don't let anybody else but you see this. I don't, I don't want to, to reveal this. I, I want to keep these needs hidden. I want to remain safe. I don't want to share anything that may be too personal or vulnerable or risky. When I... Uh, shared the story of my youth sponsor couple with another friend. And I said at the conclusion of that story something very similar to what I said to you this morning. I said, I can't believe that nobody knew what they were going through. I can't believe that they never said anything. And my friend responded, well, I wouldn't say anything either. I would have kept it secret too. See, we have normalized superficiality. We, 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 we've, we've normalized the impersonal. And we think that that's okay. And yet, in our story, this paralyzed man has to trust his friends before he can trust Jesus. Do you see that? He has to trust his friends to get him through the crowd. He has to trust his friends to lower him through the roof. He has to trust that his friends know what they're doing before he can experience the healing of Jesus. In 1 John, the idea is expressed this way. It says, if we deny fellowship with one another, and in the Bible, fellowship is never superficial. It's never impersonal. If we deny fellowship with one another then we can't have fellowship with God. That the two are always linked. To the degree that we have fellowship, that is personal, that is risky, that is vulnerable with one another, we have fellowship with God.
And so this paralyzed man on the mat has to get past any reservations that he has about being served or about appearing needy. And he allows himself to be vulnerable as he's lowered through the roof. So the first thing is we recognize that we all have needs. Nobody is free of that. The second thing is we grow in our trust for one another in the midst of those needs. And then the third thing is we invest time in sacrifice. I'm always impressed by the time and energy of this little band of brothers investing in their friend. Many uh, commentators on the church, the condition of the church in North America, have noticed that today we live in a consumer-driven uh, world, and our churches have become consumer-driven places as well, places that we go to consume religious goods and services. And the mantra of the consumer is always, what fits me, what am I comfortable with, what do I need? One writer has compared the church to a salad bar. And we say, I don't have a lot of time, I don't have a lot of money, and I want to pick and choose what I want to take with me. Think for a minute about the, the actions, these, the, the, this loving, grace-filled action of these four friends on the roof that day. And as you think about their actions, listen to this description from 1 John chapter 3. If we love our Christian brothers and sisters, it proves that we have passed from death to eternal life. But a person who has no love is still dead. Anyone who hates another Christian is really a murderer at heart, and you know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. We know what real love is because Christ gave up his life for us, and so we also ought to give up our lives for our Christian brothers and sisters. If anyone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need and refuses to help, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let us stop just saying we love each other. Let us really show it by our actions. It is by our actions that we will know we are living in the truth. For John, truth is not something that I know so much as it is something that I do. When I look at a text like that, there's a little pinch, isn't there? And if you're, if you're somebody who finds yourself like me saying routinely, I don't have a lot of time, and I don't want this to cost too much. When I, when I think about doing relationships and community and doing church, if you're like me and you, you routinely have a little voice in the back of your head saying, man, I, I just don't have a lot of time. I don't have a lot of time. How am I going to do one more thing? How am I going to be in one more person's life? I don't have a lot of time, and I don't want this to cost very much. If that's where we stand today, then I'm going to invite you to consider that there's something that Jesus wants to correct there. Jesus wants to correct that. And it's not to shame you. It's not to shame me. It's not to say you're doing it wrong or you've never done this right. 
But Jesus says, I want to correct that because I want to give you access to the full life that I've intended for you to have as a royal priesthood, as a holy nation, and as God's very own possession, showing others the goodness of God. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, thank you for calling us to be your people. Thank you for the light that you have shown into the darkness, a light that allows us to not only see you, but to see ourselves and to see others. Lord, as we live together as your own possession, cared for and nurtured and inhabited by your own spirit, Lord, help us to be attentive to the relationships that we have. Give us a measure of grace that allows us to move beyond, I don't have time and I don't want this to be costly, to step into a different way of measuring our lives and a different way of measuring our relationships. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your joy. And we receive them as good gifts in abundance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The...